This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series, brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thank you all for, for coming. I know that some of you have come from very far and with a lot of traffic, and there are people still stuck in traffic on, on the way, but we're going to, 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 to start. And it's really an amazing opportunity to have Linda Jacobs with us here. If uh, for the Lebanese amongst you, I can tell you that she's probably the cousin of half of half of the room, <laughs> because her her mother is a Jbara from Marjayoun, uh, her mother her grandmother is a Milki from from Bishmizin. So that's half the country, <laughs> and and she has. She's related also to the, to the Flehans, who are well represented here, <laughs> and uh, to the Firzlis, and you, you name it, we, 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 she, she's, she's sort of everybody, everybody's, everybody's cousin, and we call ourselves yelling cousins when we, are, when we, when we argue. So um, Linda is an archaeologist by profession, and she worked mainly on Iran, but she, she's, she started working on the history of Lebanese immigration and Syrian immigration to the, to the U.S. Um, and her first book was uh, about, about the community in New York, and it's, we have copies downstairs in the reception afterwards, which Linda will, will sign. And now she's working on a fascinating subject, which is the Syrians in Massachusetts, and she's here for a few days looking at, at archives and libraries and talking to, to, to people. We, we, we went and looked at the uh, Melkite archives uh, two, two days ago, and, there, and there are, there's a lot of material in, in Lawrence, and there will be a lot of material, we hope, that will show up from families and from people in, in the local uh, co community and Worcester, of course, <laughs> yes. Uh, on, uh, and uh, so um, this is uh, an interest of mine personally. I'm Nadim Shahadi. I'm director of the Faris Center. And it is also a, a, big, a large interest for the center because we are a center for Eastern Mediterranean studies at Fletcher. And we are... And when I arrived here, I realized that I'm surrounded by communities from the Eastern Mediterranean, by Greeks, Armenians, Lebanese, Syrians, Palestinians, Albanians, uh, uh, Egyptians, uh, uh, and of course Jews from the region and, and Israelis and all that. So there was, we, we are really surrounded by, uh, and, and we, we, we would very much like to engage with the community, especially the young people, about their how they see their connection with the region. And last semester we had a very interesting workshop uh, about the, the connection between the history of Ottoman uh, displacement and post-Ottoman displacement, which was caused by a disruption during the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of nation states.
and the connection of that with the current displacement of refugees who a hundred years later are being displaced because those very nation states are collapsing themselves. So there, there's a lot of uh, history, historical connections uh, and, and uh, it, it's, it's a very important subject to, to, to look into not just for the historical part but for the contemporary. So please join me in welcoming Linda, and she's going to talk, and then we'll, we'll have uh, some questions and answers, and we have a reception downstairs at the center later, where we hope to meet you all. Thank you. I should add that the reception, I think, has Prosecco to on offer, so it's, it's going to be a good one. So. Um, I want to thank you all for coming. It's just wonderful to see you. I know um, some of my friends are missing and they're probably in traffic. So there'll probably be people coming in uh, whenever throughout the you know, first 15, 20 minutes, I think. So um, I, I'm, I'm Linda Jacobs. Uh, I'm the author of Strangers in the West, uh, The Syrian Colony in New York City, 1880 to 1900. And that, was, that book was prompted by the fact that my, all four of my grandparents were part of the Syrian colony in New York, and no one had ever written anything about the Manhattan colony until I did it. So it, it, was, it was incredible, actually, that, to me, that the mother colony had never been written about. Of course, people have written about Brooklyn, uh, which was later, but no one had ever written about Man the Manhattan colony. So that's, that was a gap that I filled. And now I'm going to write a book about every state in the Union and every territory in the Union and the Syrian colonies in all of those states. And they were in all of those states in the 19th century. So they were intrepid travelers. I want to thank Nadim and I want to thank Lauren for all of your great hosting and your help and for having me here tonight. Thank you very much. Um, the first thing I want to do is kind of clear the air here about the title of the talk and the title of, titles of my book, uh, the word Syrian. We've uh, all been through this argument with everyone. Um, Syria in the 19th century included a part of what is now Syria, all of what is now Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and the borders did move around, so it's, the things that I just told you are only partially true, but true enough um, for the uses of this talk. And so, and the Syrians called themselves Syrians. They called themselves also fellow Ottomans, sons of the Ottoman. There were other names, they had other names for themselves, but they did call themselves Syrians. And if any of you have parents who grew up in this country, you heard it all the time at home because my mother always called herself Syrian, my father always called himself Syrian. So although it's true that the majority came from what is now Lebanon, it was not everyone. And the majority were Christians, it was not everyone. So it was, and they didn't make any distinction in the 19th century between people who came from Aleppo or Damascus and people who came from Beirut. And so we shouldn't either when we talk about that period. Um, tonight I'm going to talk, uh, this is how I changed. Tonight I'm going to talk about the early Syrians in Massachusetts. And I even have to narrow that down. And I'm really gonna only talk, going to only talk about two big colonies in Massachusetts. But this is a, 
not quite complete list of all of the colonies in Massachusetts in 1900 and the numbers of Syrians in those colonies in 1900. And this is taken from the 1900 census, which I've worked on extensively to winnow out or will, uh, winkle out all of the Syrians in Massachusetts um, in that census. Um, it's a little bit complicated, and I won't tell you why it's complicated, but I believe these numbers are accurate as far as they go. The problem with the census, and it's true all over the United States, is that it was done in the summer, and the summer is when the Syrians were out peddling, and so many of them were not home. So they depended on people to tell them who lived in the house, and the people could either speak English or they couldn't, and so the numbers are, you know, they have to be taken with a grain of salt. So take this with a grain of salt, but at least the, the relative numbers are accurate. Um, so I'm, what I'm trying to do in this book is to kind of uh, figure out a typology of Syrian colonies. And I'm using you as, a, as beta testers for me, um, because I'm going to talk about uh, the, the two biggest colonies in Massachusetts, which are Lawrence and Boston. And they um, have diff really different profiles, which I'll talk about. But I want to first um, talk a little bit about the kind of archetypical, archetypal um, Syrian colony that is talked about in most of the kind of general books about the Syrians. Um, and I'm going to talk about the Syrian colony, a Syrian colony rather than the Syrian immigrant, because I'm, I'm really interested in the typology of colonies now. So the colony, um, a typical Syrian colony, was made up of a merchant selling dry goods to other to peddlers. Peddlers um, came as often single men. This is the the kind of archetype: single men. Um, who came from Lebanon or Syria, from greater Syria, penniless. They took uh, shenta or akesha uh, notions um, on, on credit from a supplier. The supplier was either a relative, someone from the same village, and at the very, or someone at the very least of their religion. And the suppliers are always men, but the peddlers were women or men. And these are the only three early photographs of Syrian peddlers that exist in the world, as far as I know. Maybe there are some in the Ottoman, I mean, I don't know, maybe there are some somewhere. Um, uh, and I'll talk about B.K. Forsley, who's on the left. This is a Syrian woman in New York carrying her basket with her uh, notions and a Syrian peddler in Alabama. Those are really the only, th we have later pictures when they have hand carts and that kind of thing, but people actually with their things over their arms, they're, they're very, very rare. Peddlers were divided, were divided by the Syrians themselves into two kinds. Um, the Kesha, the notions peddler, and the, what they called the Jastan Harir, which is a silk bag. Nobody carried a silk bag, but that was a kind of symbol for fancy goods. And you can see the kinds of goods that each of those kinds of peddlers carried. Um, and Bashara Forsley, I have to say his name as he says it, Bashara Forsley um, came to Worcester in 1898. And this is him. He was called by his customers Jerusalem. Um, and he carried a, 
uh, Kesha. That's the Kesha, the wooden box in his right hand. And he also carried a shenta over his shoulder. And he tells us that when his uh, pack started to weigh 140 pounds, and he was a little kid, he was like uh, 14 years old there. When it started to weigh 140 pounds, he got a hand cart to push along. And then he graduated to a horse and, and buggy on the left and the, the much fancier horse and buggy on the right, built by another, a fellow Syrian in Worcester in 1908. And then he did the classic thing. He went back to Syria, married a woman from his village named Almas Forsley. That was her maiden name as well. And opened a store in Worcester. This was taken in the 1920s, but he opened the store in the teens. That is the classic immigrant story and the classic uh, typolo the classic um, colony is the store owner who Alexanav says is the big big man, the leader of the colony, and his dozen or two dozen or however many three dozen peddlers who are often living with him, called boarders, and go out and peddle his goods. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Boston as being a completely uh, a, a different kind of colony. Uh, Boston is always talked about as the second largest colony in the United States after New York. And in fact, that is, that is untrue. It is um, much smaller than Lawrence in this period, in 1900. Um, the Boston colony, I'm so sorry about these marks on the uh, map because I'm a terrible drafts person. But the black is where the Boston colony lived in 1900. And you can see, you, you, all of you who are from Boston, you can see uh, where it is. It's in what's called South Cove. And according to an article in the Syrian commercial, in the Syrian American commercial magazine that was written in, 1920, in the 1920s, actually, um, the first Syrian settlers in Boston were the Fawar brothers. They're Maronites um, from uh, Hadath al-Jabbe, is that, am I saying that correctly? Um, in, in, um, in what is now Lebanon. Uh, they came together in 1887, in 1886. They were peddling in the Boston area together. They made so much money in one year that they went home ostensibly <coughs> for good. They decided that it was too good a living, so they brought back their third brother, Dumit, who became Dominic. Um, and they, according to the article in the Syrian-American commercial magazine, they opened a dry goods store in 1887 in Boston. I'm not sure that's true because I have found no other evidence for it, but that's what the Syrian, if, it were, if it's true, it's the first Syrian business in Boston. Um, they moved to New York quite soon after that and opened a dry goods business in New York City and never came back to Boston. So they were the first colonists, but they left. So apart from this possibly embroidered story about the Fawar brothers, the first actual evidence we have um, of a Syrian in Boston dates to 1889 when Masoud Kadra, also a Maronite, um, also from Bashadi, from a district, was listed as a peddler in this city. He, his wife Helen, and his 25-year-old son Melhem landed at Philadelphia in 1885. 
and we don't know if they went straight to Boston or whether they peddled their way north from Philadelphia because already by 1885 there was a Syrian colony in Philadelphia. There were probably suppliers already there. So they may have picked up goods and moved north peddling or they may have come straight to Boston. If they did, they were here very early as well. Um, in addition to those three whom we know were here early, we know that Michael Joseph, um, Najib Malouf, and a man named Joseph Fadal were here also in the late 1880s. Um, the travel Mar traveling Maronite priest, Joseph Yazbek, came in 1891. He was the first Maronite to be ordained in this country. And the Archbishop of New York, who ordained him, sent him out to be a missionary to all the Maronite communities all over the United States. And in 1891, and he wrote a travel diary of his travels. And he came to Boston, and he found, he listed 52 Maronites in Boston in 1891, um, including the Cadres, whom we've talked about, the Two Fower Brothers, and Fadal. And that figure of 51 um, Maronites in Boston suggests that there was a population by 1891 of at least 100 and possibly more than like 150, but we have no more evidence for that than, than his count of the Maronites. But the size of the colony in 1891 makes it clear to me, knowing how the Syrians worked here, that it would have been that the colony would have been established um, in 1885 or around 1885, which makes it the second colony in the United States. It's kind of tied with Philadelphia, so maybe they're co co second, and New York being the first. So, to zoom in on the Syrian colony in Boston, the Syrian residents in the 19, in 1900, and I I put in the 1910 census just to, so you could see because the population had almost tripled by 1910 of Syrians, and you can see uh, where they were. So they were concentrating, concentrated in the South Cove area, um, on, and the, the street that gave them their name, that they were called in all the American newspapers, and that they kind of sometimes referred to themselves, was Oliver Place. I, I don't have a pointer, but it's that really thick line of black uh, <coughs> below the slightly less thick line of black. Can you see it up above on the, in the right-hand slide? Yeah. I don't, I'm sorry I don't have a pointer, but uh, there's a whole lot of black dots all in a row. That's Oliver Place. Oliver Place was a semi-blind alley, uh, only accessible from one end, and there was a thin opening at the other end. Extremely dark, extremely depressing, extremely ugly, you can go still today, it's called Ping An Alley because the Chinese, uh, Chinatown moved into that area after the Syrians left. And it's still as depressing as you can imagine. You look out, it's, it's half as wide as the street, no light comes in. You look at this blank wall of the houses on Edinburgh Street. Um, and this is, on the left is a sketch a contemporaneous sketch, a contemporary sketch from 1896 that was in the Boston Herald. Looks kind of cheerful, right? And on the right, this is not, I'm sorry to say, Oliver Place, but it looks exactly like what Oliver Place looked like. So it had the houses on one side and this blank wall on the other and a drain down the center, which was never, which was full of standing water, so a source of disease. The city never came into clean 
in this alley. So it was, uh, it was the worst kind of tenement. Um, it was the, so yeah, so the sketch is rather, um, you know, a, a kind of Pollyanna-ish way to look at it. Um, number 10, Oliver Place, housed the largest number of Syrians on the street. 32 residents, so it's, they're, they're these three-story houses, sometimes with a store at the bottom, um, two stories above, and then garrets at the top. So 10, Oliver Place, housed the largest number of Syrians on the street, 32 residents in seven households, which meant about 10 people per floor. The three larger families in that house in 1900, the Serufim, Habshi, and Asaf, probably rented two rooms each, which cost $1.75 a week. The smaller families, Akoli is the way they say it in um, English, um, Debs, Mansour, and Simon ha each had one room, which they rented at $1.25 per week. And there were three unattached Syrians who didn't belong to any of these families and they lived uh, probably in the attic in the garret. The largest concentrations of Syrians, I'm gonna just go back, um, were actually on the, on the west side of Neeland, so that's on the other side of that, the White Valley, um, where, where uh, concentrations of Syrians reached 60 in a house. And um, it was, and th so that meant that there were people crowded into rooms who were probably not related. So there were, how, there were families, but there were also strangers. And privacy, any kind of modesty was impossible. Yeah, there are plenty. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, there's plenty of seats. Glad you're here. Thank you. Sorry. Um, the facilities in these tenements I can't think of a word to describe them. Dismal, horrible, appalling. If the, if the tenement was well equipped, there might have been one water closet, you know, a toilet, in the whole apartment. So imagine 60 people in one of the tenement buildings sharing one water closet. If they were lucky, again, there was a cold water sink on each floor. But no place to wash clothes, no place to wash your body, no place to get rid of garbage, no place to get rid of anything that didn't go into the water closet. It was a sink, they were sinkholes. And it wasn't, of course, the Syrians, just the Syrians living here. There were all kinds of immigrant, very poor people uh, living in the, um, living in this, these conditions. The common areas which were the responsibility of the landlord were worse than the interior rooms because the landlords didn't care. Their rents were so low, they couldn't have cared less about the poor people living in their tenements, and they never cleaned. So even if the Syrians, which they were said to do, kept their individual rooms clean, the, the common areas were filthy. This is an article from the Boston Herald on the richest and poorest of all Boston blocks, and Oliver Place was the poorest Boston block in this, which was, I think, 1904. The cause of death listed in the death certificates I found from Boston are precisely those that result from this kind of crowded, dirty, in unsanitary conditions. Tuberculosis was rampant. Bright's disease, which is a 
disease of the kidneys, pneumonia, meningitis, gastrointestinal illnesses, and marasmus, which is a 19th century term for malnutrition of babies. And they use it as a kind of combination term, malnutrition and exhaustion. It's tragic, very sad. And 15% of Syrian families, and this is unheard of in most other places uh, in the Syrian colonies, 15% of Syrian families were forced to apply for relief from aid agencies in 1898, and more than half of them were ill with lung troubles and rheumatism. Why was the Boston colony so destitute? It was not like that in New York. New York had a share of problems. They lived in tenements, and they were crowded. They were overcrowded. But this was much worse. About half of the Boston Syrians were peddling, and, and peddlers generally made a pretty good living. But the, the, the other half of the Syrians in Boston were working in factories and mills. And they were semi-skilled and unskilled laborers in brass foundries, wire or comb factories. They worked in glo as glovers, as cigar or cigarette makers, in textile factories, and by far the largest number in rubber and rubber shoe factories, like the Hood Rubber Company. Uh, hundreds of Syrian men and women commuted on the electric trolleys every day to factories in Malden, Watertown, and Natick. I call this community in Boston a mixed community because they are about half peddlers and half factory workers. Unskilled or semi-skilled factory workers were paid between five and ten dollars a week. And Syrians were at the low end of that scale. And remember that they were paying a dollar seventy-five to two fifty a week for rent. So half their salaries went to rent for these uninhabitable tenements, and the other half went for food. Peddlers, by contrast, could make fifty dollars a week profit in 1900, and that's very well documented, and it's true all over the country. So ask yourselves, and I ask myself, why? did the Boston Syrians work in factories when their fellow Syrians in the same colony living next to them were peddling and making ten times as much money. I, this is my conclusion, and I may be treating this, this organization unfairly, but I think it's at the door of the Associated Charities of Boston, which was an organization that was founded in the 1870s to systematize rationalize and coordinate charity all through the city. And they had their point of view about work, and peddling was not work. To them, peddling was begging, and it was the same as not working. So they were very vocal, and they held back help from people that they felt were undeserving. You've heard this term, the undeserving poor, or the deserving poor. And Syrians, anyone who preferred to peddle, was considered the undeserving poor. So if a Syrian who was peddling had a bad week, or a bad three weeks, or a bad month, and couldn't afford food for his children, the Associated Charities would encourage them to get a job in a factory, because that's what they considered to be legitimate work. Here are some quotes from an 1898 report 
of the associated charities. The desire to appear poor encourages a mode of living which is alike unhealthful physically and morally. They overcrowd tenements to avoid high rents and dirt and squalor are their daily companions. Things are permitted in Oliver Place, which were in a public way could not exist. And they said of the 26 cases seen in 1898, all have been peddlers at least part of the time and four have been beggars. And these are the people who were seeking help from the associated charities. One could unpack these sentences at, at length but they essentially mean, they essentially accuse the Syrians of choosing to live in filth and squalor and watch their babies die. So in order to earn the approbation of Americans, and in this case really the Associated Charities, Boston Syrians were pushed into factory work. So the lives of the Boston Syrians, were they as bleak as I'm presenting? I have to say yes and no. Syrians in every colony in the United States and probably every place in the world took care of their own spiritual needs and they did it quite early. They, and they also took care of some of their other needs and they turned to help outside of the colony when they needed it. But as always, the spiritual needs came first. The Boston colony seems to have been, and I don't have I'm not yet ready to say this for a fact, seems to have been about equally divided between Maronite and Greek Orthodox congregates, with the Melkites being a smaller percentage. And the reason I say that is because they didn't have a resident priest in Boston, the Melkites, for a very long time, and they were served by the priests that went to Lawrence. Very early in his mission, Joseph Yazbek, who came in 1891, decided that Boston needed a, a priest and a church. And he uh, raised money all over the United States on his travels for a Boston church. And the Boston co congregation with that money was eventually able to purchase a building at 66 Tyler Street. And in 1899, Boston's Archbishop Williams, that's the article on the left, presided over the dedication of the new church, which was named St. Joseph's. And that's a really bad picture from a, a newspaper of it on the right. Oh, I'm not going to change it. And the Orthodox Archmandrite Raphael Hawawini, who is now a saint in the Antiochian Orthodox Church, um, visited Boston many, many times. And in 1899, he estimated the Orthodox population at 180. Um, at the end of 1900, George D. Maloof, arrived and began to conduct Orthodox services on the ground floor of 6 Oxford Street, right in the middle of the colony. And he's quoted in the American newspapers, it's rather um, poignant, we are not quite satisfied with the proposed chapel in Oxford Street, but it is the best we can do with our present means, for we are very poor indeed. In 1905, Archmandrite um, Hawawini uh, formed a committee to raise funds for a new church in Boston to which the Tsar of Russia, because the Orthodox Church was then under the Russian Orthodox Church, reportedly con uh, contributed $1,000. The, 
the congregation bought a building at 32 Hudson, which became the Orthodox Chapel and Maloof's home. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, the intellectual side of the Boston Colony, only because the Quincy School for Boys and the Tyler Street School for Girls were right in the colony, and 40 um, Syrian children attended school in the 1900 census, 20 boys and 20 girls, which is a nice little e equation. And um, as I'm sure you know, Khalil Gibran went to Quincy as a young boy when he was in the colony. Um, and you, we have to realize that when people send their children to school, it's a big sacrifice because they're struggling to make a living. They're living in poverty. And these children, and there were ch Syrian children in other colonies, peddling, out peddling and helping their family income. And these children, these 40 children, were sent to school because they were making an investment in the next generation. The, the most interesting thing about Boston is perhaps the fact that, that, that there were no homegrown Amer Arabic newspapers here until much later. Uh, two um, editors came from New York and started up their newspapers that they'd already started in New York in Boston. They were only here for a couple of years and then they left. And the first homegrown newspaper in Boston was 1909. Lawrence beat them by several years. And one Syrian association that I know about started in the 19th century, which was founded by a man named uh, Elias, Dr. Elias Sawabini, who had just gotten his medical degree from Baltimore, and he came to Boston to live, and he was um, Greek Orthodox, and he founded a society, a self-help society. They provided money for Syrians who hadn't made it and wanted to go back to Syria, and a little bit more um, perniciously, they helped the Associated Charities decide who was deserving and who was not deserving of help. So it was a very fraught kind of help that they gave. And then the most interesting part of the, for me, part of the Syrian colony in terms of help was Denison House, which was the fourth settlement house um, established in the United States. Uh, modeled after Jane Addams Hull House in Chicago. And it was founded um, at 93 Tyler Street. They, they bought a building there, which was really in the middle of the Syrian colony. And they, they uh, ministered to everyone. And they were, unlike the Associated Charities, they were non-judgmental. They were accepting of everyone. And they wanted to help in this very practical way. They provided a plethora of outreach programs for the people of South Cove, first welcoming Syrian children in 1896. The first club for Syrian women was founded, I'm just going to kind of flip through these slides, uh, in 1907, and an all-male Syrian drama club also thrived. Khalil Gibran was introduced to his first mentor in Boston through the efforts of Denison House. And these are two of the individuals who, um, you can tell the boy on the right is a, is a scout. They had a scouting program at Denison House. Two of the girls who are at summer camp with Denison House. And a Syrian women's group. And they had a Syrian, uh, Syrian volunteer who was their cultural and language interpreter. So it was not all, you know, their lives were not all bad. They had some ways of um, getting outside of their tenements and doing other things. 
Now I want to talk a, a, a bit about Lawrence, which was the largest colony in Massachusetts and only second only to New York in all of the United States in 1900. Sorry. Oh, this is the drama club. This is the all-male drama club at Denison House. So this is Lawrence. Um, and again, I apologize for my marks. Can you see those little red marks? It's really hard to see them, right? And then there are some down here. So um, the Syrians arrived in Lawrence around 1890. The first Syrian marriage certificate filed in Lawrence was that of Joseph Batal and Bedelia Hori in 1891. And the first registered birth was that of Arzi Batal, who was born to Amin and Rosa Batal in 1892. The Batals were Melkites from Zahli. Uh, and there are still Batals in Lawrence. They've been there for generations. And uh, there was a famous doctor who lived there. Um, according to Donald Cole in his seminal work on the immigrants of Lawrence uh, called Immigrant City, it's a fantastic book if you haven't read it. There were a hundred Syrians living in Lawrence in 1895. By um, 1900, there were 200 women and 500 men working in the woolen mills, including the Pacific, Washington, and Everett Mills in Lawrence. Of the, of the people who provided a profession in Lawrence, the Syrians who provided a profession in Lawrence in 1900, 92% of them were working in the mills. And this was, you know, 200 women and 500 men. And just to zoom in, this is a really bad uh, stitched together two maps. You can see that the Syrians lived in two separate enclaves, separated by about six blocks, 550 in the northern enclave and about 250 in the southern. And I don't have enough data to prove this yet, um, and Nadim has cautioned me about saying such things, but I will say it anyway, and you can all argue with me afterwards. And that is, I think, the, um, that the Maronites and the Melkites were living in the northern colony, in the northern enclave, and the Orthodox were living in the southern, but I could easily be proved wrong. But they were, that they were separate. And this is the northern enclave. You can see they live um, mostly on elm, oak, and, um, and a, a few on chestnuts. These were, I want to show you these, um, and this is a southern enclave, near the canal and the Merrimack River. And all of this pink stuff that you see at the bottom are all of the mills, the Pacific Mill, the Atlantic Mill. Um, and some of the mills were in the town itself. Um, the tenements were mainly detached frame houses. These pictures were taken in the 1950s before urban renewal. So they're very derelict because they've been abandoned for a long time. But you get the sense of what they looked like. They were four-story frame houses, um, very close to one another, so very little light. And they were divided into tenements, as were the, the, the buildings in Boston. The, and they settled in the third ward in these houses, and it was a diamond-shaped ward that was between the Spicket River on the north and the Merrimack and the canal on the south. Everyone walked to work because the mills were right there. Um, the ones remaining in Lawrence now, the, the, these houses, these frame houses, which someone told me a couple uh, yesterday was, were maybe unique to Lawrence, um, are called triple-deckers, but the ones that the Syrians lived in were mostly four-story. 
And in every, almost every one of these cases, they were on long, thin lots, and there it was either a stable in the back, which had been converted to tenements, extra tenements, or if there hadn't been a stable, people threw up these very cheap, uh, big tenements where the people would live. And judge, it's hard to tell from the census because they do not distinguish between the rear and the front tenements, but I, I think that the Syrians were mostly living in the rear, which were cheaper, less desirable, horrible. So here are some of them still, in the, um, again, in the 50s, but you can see how awful they are. And they've added, in the picture on the right, they've added fire escapes, but when the Syrians lived there, they did not um, have fire escapes. So imagine being on the fourth floor with 30 other people and a fire breaking out, and only one single stairway to take you down. So people died in the, um, from, from fire. They died, again, from terrible illnesses. The Third Ward had the highest infant mortality rate in all of Boston. Um, Donald Cole says that, um, oh, I've just, I've just lost it. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I think 39 babies died for every 100 um, people. Yeah, so it was really, a, I'm going I'm to have to, I'll, I'll correct that when I come to that. Um, so all the structures were partitioned into tiny rooms, many of which were dark. Dark means no windows, no windows at all. So, and this was before electricity, so you were in a dark room with a candle or a kerosene lamp, which was why there were so many fires. Health inspectors reported six Syrians sleeping in their clothes on two beds in a tiny room eight feet by ten feet on Oak Street and 19 more in four rooms on Valley Street. And as I said, um, they were probably living in the back. So intense overcrowding, lack of light and air, frequent deaths by fire, as I said, filth and vermin. Everyone talks about the voracious rats who lived in these tenements. One Syrian told a, chair, a social worker that the rats had come into their kitchen and carried away their food all of their food. Fib and in the mills, it was just as deadly. Fibers got into their lungs, causing tuberculosis, pneumonia, and other respiratory diseases. Machinery took people's limbs or their lives. People died in mill fires. Again, there were no fire escapes. And the mills had um, no, no exits. And the, the textiles, the wall, all that stuff were, were fire traps. Uh, children, food was ex in, incredibly expensive. They talked about the Syrians never being able to afford meat or milk for their children. The children were badly neglected because both parents worked 60-hour weeks. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the real number of, of infant deaths, 200 in 1,000. So that's a 20% death rate. It's very high. And I went through the death records in Lawrence every single week in the summer a Syrian baby died of cholera every week. And this was in the, you know, in the company of many, many other babies dying. But there were rays of hope even in Lawrence. This is just to give you an idea of what the neighborhood looked like. Father Joseph Simon, the first Melkite priest in New England, arrived in Lawrence in 1896. He organized the parish at St. Mary's Catholic, Roman Catholic Church on Haverhill and Hampshire, halfway between the two Syrian enclaves. 
and in late 1901, Father Philip Vital arrived to take Simon's place, ministering to 60 Melkite families. In 1902, the Syrian congregation was able to purchase a building at 298 Oak, right in the middle of the northern colony, and the newly remodeled church rectory was dedicated on Palm Sunday in 1905, and it was called St. Joseph's. It still exists in Lawrence. The, the Orthodox in Lawrence had perhaps the earliest resident priest outside New York. He is a complete enigma. He's mentioned in one filler article in the Arabic New York newspaper. His name is Mikhail Sawabini. He arrived in Lawrence in 1893, and that's all we know about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, but Archmandrite Raphael Hawawini visited Lawrence often on his travels across around the country. In 1899, he estimated the Syrian population to be 600, of whom 200 were Orthodox. But it wasn't until 1904 that an Orthodox church was established at 302 Elm Street by Abraham Corey, and it's called St. George's. It still exists. The Maronites, like the Melkites, worshipped at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church. Fathers Gabriel Korkamas and Joseph Yazbek, who um, were based in Boston, frequently visited Lawrence and preached from the pulpit of St. Mary's. In 1902, Gabriel Bistani came and became a resident priest in Lawrence and founded St. Anthony's Maronite Church. By 1904, they had collected the thousand dollars they needed to purchase a lot at 256 Elm in the heart of the Syrian colony, again in the northern enclave, where they eventually built a modest church. Bistani served as St. Anthony's pastor from 1902 to 1926. St. Anthony's also still exists. I saw it yesterday. Forty-six children were in school in Lawrence. It's a tiny number considering the population of 900, but again, Every child in school was a child that wasn't working for the family. Three homegrown Arabic newspapers were published in Lawrence. The first two, um, and those were the first in the state. The first two, El Iqbal, published by Joseph Saliba in 1903, and El Bustan by a man named Gosen Gosen, of whom we know nothing else, um, in 1905. They were both short-lived, but luckily, a man in Lawrence has collected original copies of El Iqbal, which we found out thanks to Louise, thank you, and they will now be conserved. They're in a mess, messy condition, but they'll now be conserved and digitized, and they'll go online. And the third newspaper was this one, El Wafa, uh, that was published from 1907 to 1910 by Joseph M. Khouri. And uh, this is just the sort of the nicest one of the issues. These, this, this is also digitized by the Kharalda Center in, the, in North Carolina. This comes from a microfilm, which is why it's not very pretty. But it's useful, and one can read it. Um, Saliba, who had started the newspaper Al-Iqbal, also opened a school for Syrian youth. And when they say youth, I probably means boys, but I can't be sure of that. Um, in 1903, two Syrian societies were founded in, by, at least by 1908, the Young Men of Zahli and the Maronite Golden Cross Society. By 1908, a number of Syrian mom-and-pop stores had opened up in Lawrence, uh, uh, providing goods and services to other Syrians. 
And this is one of the more successful Syrians in Lawrence. These are the Hyder brothers, um, who that were six brothers who came with their father and a couple of sisters as well. And they own this tenement building. Um, this was taken in the 20s, but they bought it, I think, in the teens. They own the tenement building. They own the stores below as well. And the most, in the, the most surprising category of businesses owned by Syrians in 1908 in the Syrian, commercial, in the Syrian uh, directory was real estate agent. There were six Syrian real estate agents in Lawrence in 1908, which means that there were Syrians buying real estate in 1908, and clearly the Hyder brothers were one. This is Thomas Khalil and Sons Dry Goods Store on the corner of Elm and Lawrence. And I want to just say five words about Worcester because my time is up. And there, I want to just tell you that there, the, the Worcester community was completely different from the two we've heard. It was much more of an archetypical or archetypal community of peddlers and merchants. There were some other people doing other things. This is a Syrian um, map of where the Syrians were. More importantly than the fact that I've run out of time is that Worcester, unlike most other colonies, was the subject of two fantastic monographs. One of the authors is right here, so you can ask him questions afterwards. And a wonderful autobiography by B.K. Forsley, who's the boy I showed you in the first few pictures. So those, I mean, Worcester in a sense has been done, but one of the things that the monographs um, said, at least to me, was that this was a really successful and um, well-established and wonderful community. And I'm going to try to dig a little bit deeper and see if there's another side to that, an anti-myth, if you will, or an anti-the other side to the story. And we can talk about this at some point. So that's my task for the next months, is to do the rest of the United States and find the anti-myth as well as the myth. So thank you for being here. Really interested in your methods. Could you give me a second? 
a really, really quick overview of like how you get such detailed information, and within that, what's the greatest challenge is. I'd love to, <laughs> and I'll try not to go on too long. It's really actually fun. So I, my baseline is the census. Okay. When I started this project on the New York colony, the censuses were online, but no one had ever tried to figure them out. And so I went through them one at a time, one sheet at a time. You know, I did searches, of course, for Syrians, for Turkey, for Palestine, for Jerusalem, for Damascus, for Assyria, because they didn't know the difference between Assyria and Syria, the census takers. And then any other thing I could think of. So I got a baseline 1900 census. And then I started going through every name and looking for evidence of that name anywhere. So I looked through all the birth and death and marriage records in the New York archives. I looked at all naturalization records, looking for those names. I looked at um, newspapers that were online and newspapers that weren't online. Blah, 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 blah. And then I went back and, and, and I, you know, so there are um, 1,900 people in the, 19, in the 1,900 census for New York City. And I have 3,500 names of people who were in New York City in 1,900. Who, and so 2,000, you know, almost 2,000 names were not in the census. And, and as I said, the census undercounts because they were out peddling in the summer. People left the city, people left New York, they went to the resorts, and they just weren't counted. So the census undercounts. So I try to look at other sources to get, you know, the real numbers and then look at where they live. And then I have to have a contemporary map because everything's changed now. So I can't use Google Maps. I have to look at a contemporary map and plot each residence, which is what, I, which is why my dots are so ugly. Because, yeah. I, I have one small question. Yes. My, about what you, you you mentioned marriages. Uh, so did people have to register marriages? No, they did not have to. They did not have to. No, not in, at least, and in New York, I don't know about the rest of the country, but I'm sure it's true in most places. In New York, they didn't have to register marriages until 1914. They didn't have to register births either. Deaths were the only, death and taxes. Yeah. They were the only sure thing, yeah. So, yeah. No, they, um, they didn't. <coughs>
take me to the... I'm going tomorrow. Saturday also, we will have a presentation about the history of our uh, church in Boston and how it was involved and uh, all that stuff. So, if anybody is interested, you're welcome to attend this Saturday at 7 p.m. You know, um, Hawaii has also has a travel diary. We don't have his handwritten diary, but he published in the Russian Orthodox Messenger. It's in Russian. Um, and he published his travel travels in 1899. He had traveled many other times because he was charged by the Russian Orthodox um, guy, patriarch, to travel all the way across the country, and he went. Um, three times, all the way across the country to San Francisco and back. But um, the 1899 one, he published a kind of summary, which is where I got that number of the Boston Orthodox. Yeah. yeah. But somebody in your group should get a copy of that because it's really very wonderful. He was the censor, the censor. Is that, how do you say that? Censor, not the incense, but the person who makes sure everything is correct that's being written. He was a censor for the Russian Orthodox magazine for many years. Yeah. And I'm in close touch with Julia Ritter, who's the librarian at the Antiochian Museum. And yeah, because you have a nice collection out there. Do we have Russian interference from the 19th Are you calling on people or am I calling on people? No. Uh, Please. I have two questions. Were there also uh, Muslim Syrians in the immigration? And the second question is, what was the impetus to leave their home country? Both really great questions, yeah. So I'll talk about the Muslims first. We're, uh, we have a big fight in New York. I'm winning. Um, <laughs> because there's one article in the New York Times that says, says that there's a mosque down near the Syrian colony that was established by the Ottoman consul. Um, and I don't think it was for the Syrians. I think it was for the other Muslims in New York. As far as, because I don't think there were any Syrian Muslims in New York. What the Turkish scholars say is that the Syrian Muslims came and changed their names to sound Christian and sometimes even converted, but not even, that isn't even the important part. It's so that people wouldn't think that they were Muslims because they were coming to this Christian country. But let me just say that there were known Muslims who went elsewhere. We have them homesteading in North Dakota. We have Muslims, I have a fantastic group in Sioux City, Sioux Falls, Idaho, um, I guess it's Idaho, with 30 peddlers and a Syrian Christian supplier. And in the 30 peddlers are probably 20 Muslims. So they were definitely here. They weren't in New York as far as I can tell, unless they really were changing their names. And they weren't much on the East Coast, but they were in the Midwest, they were in Texas, and they were homesteading and farming. And there was an Ottoman colony in Salem, in Salem on the North Shore, uh -huh. uh, uh, of Turks, Turks, who came and, and they all went back. And they all went back. The, yeah. the Ottoman, the, the Turkish consul of, of, of Boston, Yes, he changed. Uh, 
no. no uh, the, the current one ah. was giving a talk at Harvard, ah. and he spoke about the first consul of uh, the Ottoman Empire, who was a Yazidi. But Yazidi is a Syrian. I think there was a confusion due to the Ottoman Empire yes. yeah. control yes. that some people called themselves Turks or Ottomans or something like that. Maybe there was some confusion and they could have been Syrians. Yeah, so the first consul was the Yazidi. Was a, was a, but he came in the 1830s. So, so he's the so earliest he Syrian to let here. From that region from Barbarita, here the Yazidi from that then it changes all the history we know uh, about uh, Antonio Michelani and uh, blah, 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 yeah. And there was a, um, there was a Melkite priest who came earlier than Michelani, too, and he, uh, to raise money, but he was, a, you know, he didn't come to say. Um, and neither did Michelani, really. He came. 1843. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. That's the expert.
they spoke English so well, they all left. And they thought it was a, you know, new, yeah. Can we call on? Yes. Because you didn't say anything before. <laughs> just, yes. I had a question about the early immigrants here. If they lived in such filthy conditions and victims of disease, why would they come? Because the early immigrants came from Mount Lebanon. And Mount Lebanon, the conditions in Mount Lebanon were better than anywhere else in Syria. Why would they come if they lived in such filthy conditions? Because people came back after a year in New York or a year in Providence or a year in North Dakota with $1,000 in their pocket or $10,000 in their pocket. There's a, there's a great, maybe you know this, there's a wonderful dissertation that was done in 1936 of the Syrian, um, in, Syrians in Pittsburgh by a guy named Morris Zeldich. It's just fantastic. And he, the, he looks at 10 pioneers, the 10 oldest immigrants. And in 1936, those people were still alive. And he tells the story about this man who made, he stayed here for three years. He, made 10, he put $10,000 in his pocket. He went back to his village fully intending to stay. He pulls the $10,000 out of And all of his relatives say, you made $10,000 in three years? You're going back and you're taking us with you. Well, this is and a story that 15, people come here. But he brought 15 people with him. And that's why they came. They came to make money. They came to but make why money. why did they live in, in such critical conditions? Because they were making not enough. And they were saving like crazy. You know, the Syrians in New York lived in squalor, but they would say, and Alexa Nav says this even in her book, someone would say, you made $50 this week. A bed costs $2. Why don't you go out and buy yourself a bed? They were sleeping on the floor. Why should I buy myself a bed? I can save the $2, sleep on the floor, and I'll be a self-employed person that much sooner. Well, sleeping on the floor was the uh, norm in uh, that court. Right, but so that's an, but you know, it is. It's an example. I mean, they were depriving themselves as well, but not in Boston. In Boston, they lived where they lived because everyone lived there and they were poor. And same in Lawrence. They lived where they could live with the other immigrants, where the mill workers lived, and they were really, really, really poor. <coughs> I may, uh, to uh, Mr. Saliba's question, why did Christians came from Lebanon, from Mount Lebanon, which is probably the most beautiful part on earth, to live in Islam in uh, uh, such a living condition in Boston? It is very simple. The reason they came, because the Ottoman Empire at that time were treating, especially Christians, as second-class citizens. Number two, they were treated as slaves. They were taken to Turkey to fight for them, to work uh, 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 this and that. Thousands of men left to Turkey and never came back. Thousands and thousands. So they and, and and they 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 would they would not walk on the same streets like the uh, the Muslims would at that time, at the time the Ottoman Empire had ruled that part of the region. So the reason they came they came because of hunger. There's no future. 
and they had no other option but to take the ocean that, 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 that guess what, half of them never made it to Boston, never mind how they lived down here. Right, right, half right. of them would die on the road, on the right, journey, right, and they were thrown right, in the water. Right. But uh, I'll tell you yes. something there, that when you, when you read the accounts, that's not what people say about themselves. You read D.K. Forsley's account, he said, <coughs> And I just, we just put up from the Hanova Center two, um, two memoirs by two dentists who lived in uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. And they each wrote their own memoirs. It's, they're both lovely. And they came really early. They came in the 1880s. The, the older brother came in the 1880s. People don't say it was because they were oppressed. They don't say those things. Later they do say that, when the draft began to bring Christians into the army and that kind of thing. Yes, they do say that. Earlier they don't say that. It's a sense of adventure that they talk about, these young men. It's a, it, they want to make a better living. The future thing is very true. There's no future here for me. Um, there's not enough land for me to farm. What, those kinds of things. They were mainly economic. They really, really were. And they don't, you know, the stories that were told later to the grandchildren were these oppression stories. My father told me those stories, you know. And, but when you read the contemporary accounts, or close to contemporary accounts, by the people who actually came, it really was adventure and my fortune is over there overseas. So, yeah, I mean, it's everything you said is true, but the motivation is something else. Yeah. Uh, I had a question about your work with the census. Um, you had mentioned in Boston in the 1900 census that a lot of the, it was happening in the summer with the peddlers, so there were some inaccuracies. Yes. You believe there were some inaccuracies? Yes. What about in Lourdes, where the majority of the people were working in factories? Were there same inaccuracies because they're still working and out, or do you think the census was more accurate? In That's a really good question, but I think it was much more accurate because everybody in Lawrence was working in a factory. Yeah. And I think, um, the, and I'm not just talking about Syrians. Yeah. The whole town was a melt town, right? So, um, and I think either they came in the evening because there were, in, in the just in the neighborhood where the Syrians were, there were French Canadians who didn't speak any English. There were Jews, there were Russian Jews and Eastern European Jews. There were Italians who didn't speak any English. And so there must have been a way. They don't tell you what time of day they came. But I guess they must have come after the work day. Or, because they worked six day weeks. Right. You know, and until the bread and roses strike of 1912, yeah. they worked 60 hour weeks. And so they weren't home much anyway. But there must have been a way. And I don't know what that way was. Someone does. But I don't know. Uh, yeah. I was wondering, uh, the Lawrence community, if you could talk about um, to what extent they were involved in the labor movement and the strikes there. Mm -hmm. so, uh, talking about the Lawrence community, they were involved in the labor movement. Definitely. Yeah. And in fact, we're going to do, um, yeah. Louise is sitting over there. She's the librarian for the Lawrence Public Library, the archivist. Okay. And uh, we've concocted with the Hanala Center in North Carolina to do an exhibition on the Syrians' involvement in the labor labor movement. So in the Bread and Roses strike, these are just little cute fun factoids, right? 
there were two people or three people killed in the Bread and Roses strike, and one was a Syrian boy named John Ramey. Um, the Syrian marching band led one of the marches. And there were three Syrians, this is according to Donald Cole, there were three Syrians who were not the leaders, but important in the Bread and Roses strike. One was Hajar, who was a Protestant, who is the dentist. Um, one was a guy named Brox, or Brax, but they're still in Lawrence. And the other guy's name was Marad, I don't know who he was yet. Yeah. So yes, they, they were there, and you can see why. And actually, the Syrians led a strike, an earlier strike, which is irrelevant to this conversation, in 1905 in the brickyards in, um, in Fishkill Junction in New York. They led the strike um, for better work hours and better pay, and Saturdays off. Yeah. yeah. If I, can, I, can I just add on, on, on this? Because you talked about myth, about the, the myth and countermyth. Yeah. There, there are two, the, the, about the two narratives of, of uh, immigration, one was presented by Alexa Nass, yeah. who, who talks about the Lebanese being an impersonation of the American dream, from rags to riches, peddlers to big ball owners and politics streets. And in contrast to that, there is, there is a, this is from someone on Waterville, Maine, talks about them being part of the uh, labor movement and uh, radicals and exploited and, and, uh, and all that. So it's, it's part of the myth or the stories that uh, uh, people tell about them, themselves here, uh, depending on which side of the political spectrum. Right. Mm -hmm. The man in the red plaid shirt Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my name is Zakaria Alaf, I'm from Aleppo, Syria. I have a question. In that time, in that era, you show a picture and you say it's a drama, the drama class or something like that. Uh, if there was like any type of, or form of um, music or art was introduced to the American culture by Syria at that time? Yeah, yeah. No, about the, the drama, uh, about yeah. the drama club yeah. and whether there was
home slash stores in the 19th century where they were entertained by other Syrians with oud, with uh, guitar sometimes, they didn't have an oud, you know, with the flute, with singing, and at every event, every, every event, someone would stand up and extemporaneously um, perform a poem that they had written for the, for the occasion. <coughs> so there was, and then there's all the literature, but that's another whole topic. Yeah, all these yeah, Arabic English words. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? I want to go back to the issue of Muslim oppression that forced Christians to come here. Okay. I think this is very exaggerated. Some early Christian immigrants here made much of it in order to win the sympathy of Christians here. Good point. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's yes. true. Uh, Yusuf Arbili, the first Syrian immigrant. Sorry. Sorry? There's a debate going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't hear when two conversations are going on. Oh, you're the referee. Oh. The, um, the, the first Syrian immigrant family, the Arbili, who came, the first thing he said when he got off the boat was he escaped in the Druze massacres of 1860 from Damascus without his shoes. That is true. Without his shoes. That there was were the outbreaks of violence, but 1860, there was no emigration here. The emigration. No, no, he went to Beirut. Yeah, he went to Beirut. Right. Yeah. in Beirut, and finally he came here in 1878. That's right, but he told the story the day he got off the boat. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah. Now, you know, it's a great, it's a great detail that he climbed well, out the window without his shoes. It was a different thing. But Christians had some factors in the outbreak of 1860. Say that again. Christians had some factors in the outbreak of 1860. And foreign intervention in Syria also had a, had a, what was a factor in this. Right. And it goes back to Muhammad Ali who occupied Syria in 1838. Right, 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 right. He treated Christians well in order to win the sympathy of France. Right. Because right. France was pro Mennonite. Right, right, right. This created a schism between yeah. Christians and Muslims. Right. That right. Christians had the sympathy of the West. Right. And uh, they were, they referred to France as our loving mother. Right. Right. So this created a schism. Yeah. The Christians became agents. Right. For the and, West. Yeah, yeah. For the West. Right. Exactly. Right. How, how come you talked about the Orthodox, the Maronites, and the Melkites, but you never mentioned the Protestants that, that came here? And those came educated, so I'm a little unsure about the horrible circumstances that they were living in. I'll tell you in. why, for, for three reasons. It's in my books, and it's going to be in this book too, but I cut it out of this thing because they were a tiny minority in every community, number one. Number two, their ministers. The first ministers in every case were laymen. They, they didn't have any, like for example, the guy in New York was a rug salesman. Um, and he, pre and Hajar, the dentist, um, was the first Protestant minister. Um, and they didn't have a church. They would have a mission that was supported by some, either the Congregationalists or the Presbyterians or something like that mainly because they're they're very small minority and they that's why but i, I thought that would sorry 
small but effective. So I'm an expert on the first two Syrian Jews who came. And I know more than all the Aleppo Jews in New York know about these two guys because the Syrian Christians and those two Jewish men were tight like tight. They had a language in common. They didn't live together and they didn't intermarry or anything like that. But they were tight. The first Syrian Masonic Lodge in the United States was in New York, and it was founded in 1908. There were 34 members of whom, one was an 11 Jew named Ezra Sitt. So cool, yeah, yeah. And the Sitts are still in New York. You know, they're big families. Sorry? You have some in Do you? Sitts, yeah. They own the Footjoy Shoe. Do they? Back to how we started about the fact that the series, uh, you know, in our church there was a lady, oh. she had the birth certificate of her parents, and it said, Zahdi Syria. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's a fact that you see this in the beginning. My mother called herself a Syrian until the day she died, and she's from Vishnazim. Well, she's from Vishnazin and Medjayun, right? I mean, she's Syrian, right? That's what she thought she was, and my father too, right? All the people that came identified to Syria. First of all, some of them have Turks on their side, to be honest. Greater Syria, at that time in the Ottoman Empire, is present-day Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, and parts of southern Syria. And that was Greater Syria. So that was the identification that they, that they came with. Among the Christian churches, Orthodox, Novite, and Maronite, all their churches were called, don't tell the Maronites this, it's proved up. It's called Syrian Catholic churches and Syrian Orthodox churches. Even the Maronites. I have all that proof. I have all of that. Well, the fact is, Lebanon was created in Syria. They used the word Syrian. Yeah, they identified with their villages, not with the country. And again, they called themselves, they called each other country, fellow countrymen, Ottoman countrymen, fellow Ottomans, but, but to the world, they called themselves Syrians. Yeah. I still have one remark about the Protestants. <laughs> there are about a hundred years of American machineries or English machineries preaching in Syria. They made about 5,000 Protestants, and many of them were bought. And many of them were bought. Were bought. They say that they made, they, the number of uh, converts that they made could be counted on the hand, yes, one hand. I, I, I'd have to disagree, I'd have to disagree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because the, the Protestants are actually the original Christians that hid in the mountains oh. and never converted to anything. No, 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 I mean, 
in no, Lebanon. Camille, Camille, no religious arguments here. <laughs> 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 yes, that's what we're going to have. And go get some from <laughs> 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 